Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and our word on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Got um, an author and uh, so much more, actually. And so what we'll do is we'll just have them jump right in. Um, welcome, Charlie Serafin. I'm glad to meet you. Nice to meet you, Al. Thanks for the opportunity to uh, meet your guests and uh, know I'm not a killer. Well, <laughs> that's a, a just what I said. You know, it's something uh, just a little bit different for us, but that's this. <laughs> I say that nicely. So now, Charlie, uh, you are uh, you have written a book, and it's called uh, One Stupid Mistake, Smart Decisions Making... In a well, in a crazy world, yeah. Smart decision making yeah, in a crazy. Uh, yeah, you know, I have to give a little mistake. We don't count that one as a no. Major. Well, I, 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 that's that's my producer wrote this out. <laughs> what is this? It's it's like uh, it's, it's uh, really not. I could. It, it's uh, shorthand, I guess. So okay. um, tell me about Charlie. So wh- where where did this come from? Uh, the book. And uh, why you? No idea, and uh, no idea. Perfect. I can't really. I can't tell you. That I. I think the. Uh, uh, the truth of the matter is stranger than fiction. So I think it fits right into the mystery of your program. I. I've always written. I've always written little things, but I did not set out to write a book. I have. There was at no point that I think. Oh, I think I'll write a book. But I started writing these essays, I guess you'd call them, short little 
uh, stories that were had nothing to do with one another. And sometimes in the middle of the night, I would wake up and I would go, oh, yeah, and I, and I would have this kind of unusual, strange thought. So I'd go to the computer, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, and, and sometimes it would be a word or two, sometimes it would be a sentence, sometimes a paragraph, sometimes a page. And I would write it out, and go, oh, okay, uh, you can go back to bed now. And I went back to bed. And I, I did this for a relatively long period of time. And in the midst of doing that, I had, I, I, I don't know if you looked at my, my bio, but in another life, um, <laughs> still in this body on the planet, yeah. I was involved in the, in the radio business. So I'm very comfortable being on the radio. I've been on the radio probably tens of thousands of times. And I used to uh, do a lot of interview programs, and I've done a lot of man-on-the-street interviews. Just walk up to people at random and ask them a question. And I always love doing that because people are very entertaining, especially when they don't have a lot of time to think about it or worry about it. So I, in addition to writing these little things, whatever you want to call them, essays I call them, I started asking people, hey, uh, excuse me, I'm working on a project. Would you mind sharing a mistake that you've made with me? And the reactions, Al, were just mind-boggling. It was really, it was nothing like what I expected. People started uh, turning every shade of blue. Uh, they, they, they got really <laughs> uncomfortable. And, I, I, you know, you'd think I was asking them, hey, do you mind if I see what brand of underwear you're wearing? Or yeah. something really You'd think a mistake would be an easy thing. Oh, yeah, but and here are some responses. A lot of people said, oh, gosh, that's really hard. Uh, I've made a lot of mistakes, uh, but I can't, I can't uh, think of any right now. Um, or some people would say, oh, yeah, yeah, good question, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was just thinking about that. Uh, can I get back to you? <laughs> and, of course, I knew they would never get back to me. Half of them didn't know who I was. So... Uh, and then I would get a response like, oh, well, one time I forgot to get the bacon on my wife's cheeseburger, and I know she likes bacon on her cheeseburger. So it was uh, kind of a put-off answer to a, what I thought was a, you know, a reasonable question. And then maybe 1% or a half of 1% of the people, and I talked to hundreds of people because I was having fun with this now. You know, the, yeah. the more uncomfortable <laughs> they were with their reactions, the more fun it was. So I started asking um, uh, people to share a mistake, and a really small percentage said something incredibly personal and thought-provoking and serious. I had a woman tell me, and this was a stranger that I had never met before, she said, she looked at me and she said, I got pregnant when I was 19. I had a relationship with somebody I had no business having a relationship with. I didn't like him, he didn't like me, but we had sex and I got pregnant and I was like whoa okay that's pretty significant and then she looked at me and she said but um, I want to tell you that that was 10 years ago and right now I have the most beautiful 10 year old son I've since met the man of my dreams we got married we have a wonderful relationship and a great family and I kind of owe it all to that one stupid mistake so I had the whole gamut there of people from that didn't want to admit any kind of mistake to someone who admitted a really personal mistake, 
And that prompted me to ask a second question. And the second question was, do you have a little voice inside you that tells you when you're about to do something you know you shouldn't do? And again, I, I had no idea what the response would be, but the response blew me away because every single person, rich, poor, young, old, uh, uh, every socio-demographic, uh, you know, just everybody, atheists, agnostics, uh, overtly and devoutly religious people, every single person said exactly the same thing. They said, yes. Some said, I don't call it that, but yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. I have that voice. So I started putting the two together, and I thought, everybody makes mistakes. You make mistakes, Al. I make mistakes. We all make mistakes. And every single one of us has some kind of an internal mechanism that tells us when we're about to do something that we know we shouldn't do, and yet we do it anyway. So then I went back to my essays, and I realized I was writing all these little stories about people making decisions. So it all came together after I wrote the 21st essay, and that was a story about a friend of mine who died a horrific death uh, from cancer. And I put together this fun little book of 21 very short chapters. Each one has a meditation. We can talk about that later. I'm kind of rambling now. but um, And everyone has a thought for the day. And it's, a, it's for people who make decisions, which means it's for everybody. And um, it gives you a chance to do a little bit of reflection on a topic that we don't spend nearly enough time thinking about, and that is our stupid mistakes. Well, why do you think that's important? And why do you think it, it, that is something that we don't spend any time on? Well, um, as I said, I was involved in the media for a long time, and I would say and challenge any of our uh, listeners today to look at the day's top headlines any day, any time, and out of the top five, I bet you can find two at least, maybe more, some days five out of five, that are associated with a human being making an incredibly stupid mistake because it's just happening, and it seems to be accelerating. It seems that people making, behaving badly and doing dumb things is almost the new norm. And then we have, and I, I don't really want to get political, and I think I'm relatively apolitical, so I'm not leaning left or right on this thing, but we have leaders who, number one, will not admit that they've made mistakes. I'm waiting for that, you know, <laughs> that, that leader to come out and go, you know what, folks, I really screwed up. Yeah. It was all my fault. I made a bad judgment. I misread the situation. I said or did something I know I shouldn't have done, and I'm really sorry, and I hope you forgive me, and I promise I'll try to do better next time. But instead, what we have is we have a culture where the leaders of both the left and the right get on television and on the radio and in the newspapers, magazine articles, every single day pointing their finger at somebody else and saying it's all their fault. They screwed up. It wasn't me. I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. I don't make mistakes. Right. I'm a leader. You know, they made all the mistakes, and it's all their fault. And that's frustrating because that's just not how it works. Well, and if we don't start admitting our mistakes and spending a little time with them, as I said, and reflecting on them, 
and finding ways to commit fewer mistakes, we're not going to be in very good shape. Well, I didn't make any mistakes. It's that fake news media that's telling you that I made a mistake. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and it's the other side, too. It's like, you know, I can't find anything good that this, this uh, regime has done. Yeah. You know, this administration hasn't done anything good. Everything they've done is bad. Well, no, come on. Yeah. You know, it's just not like that. That's not realistic. It's, it's, um, there's, you know, I, I, I just think we're, we're missing an opportunity. And, and so I think, look, I don't expect that we're going to get to those people and they're going to change their behaviors. And starting tomorrow, we're going to have all of our leaders stand up, raise their hand and admit their mistakes. I, I don't believe that'll happen. But what I do believe can happen is that you and I, Al, and every person who's listening now can take a little quiet time, <clears throat> get in touch with what I call your quiet little voice that helps guide you and tell you right and wrong. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you. I, I, it's not like I say, okay, you should do this or do that or think this or think that or say this or say that like I do because I'm right. No, I, I'm not right. I'm only, I only know what's right for me. You know what's right for you. But if every person did only what they knew was right or they thought was right, we would be light years ahead of where we are today. Well, how do I separate the voices that are telling me to go out and blow up things? Exactly. That's a good question. <laughs> and, you know, um, those voices, by the time you get to that point uh, where they tell you to go out and uh, mail a bunch of bombs or uh, go into a synagogue and, and uh, shoot a bunch of uh, innocent people, by that point, the, the damage has already been done. You, you are so far out of touch with your quiet little voice that whatever that is that you're hearing, that's, that's uh, coming from a, from a deep, dark place. Right. And I, what I believe the source of that is, and this is a theory, I, I don't think anybody, you can't disprove it, but I can't prove it. But I, I believe, and my premise for the book is, that the source of a lot of that, uh, what I call noise, is just that. It's our world. It's, um, it's a combination of traditional media and social media and airplanes flying overhead and mechanical sounds and uh, TV blaring in the background and uh, going for a walk in nature with earbuds and listening to your favorite music turned up uh, to a loud volume. And you have so much uh, external, or your, your wife or your husband or your mother-in-law or your sister-in-law, or your child, or your parent, or whoever. There's so much stuff that we're being bombarded with on a daily basis, on a minute-by-minute on a -minute basis. It's really hard to find that quiet space. And I like to remind people, there's a reason that peace and quiet, as words, go together. You know, why do we say peace and quiet? Well, they're in inverse order. The peace comes after you find the quiet, and if you don't take a little bit of time every day for quiet, where you're not being uh, bombarded by external uh, sound waves and visual images, then you're, you're less likely to be able to get in touch with your quiet little voice that sort of, um, the, the media term is recalibrates, right? So we recalibrate ourselves and get back into sync. And then we can go about our business, and we know right from wrong, and we generally will do the right thing. 
but when you get all all crazy because you have all this other external garbage that's blasting at you, you know, second after second, um, it's it's really hard to hear your quiet little voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I just have to wonder where it gets lost when you you know because. We 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 choose our life. We get up and and we go to work and uh, and uh, wife, kids, car, or or single downtown in a suite. And however we do it, we're you know we're going about our day, and we have our voices uh, telling us different things, and um, and our mistakes. Um, how do we get lost from that or lost in these voices to the fact where we're not really in touch with what's around us. I think it's a, it's a, um, it's kind of like waves at the beach. You know, I think it just happens over time. It slowly and gradually erodes. And the example that I use in my personal life, and again, I don't know if this is exactly what happened to you or to any other person who might be listening but I remember, I, I really worked, in a, and the, writing these essays in the middle of the night kind of helped, but I really remember as a kid being more in touch with that quiet little voice. I, and I tried to think of a specific instance that I could remember where I heard the little voice, but I did the wrong thing anyway. And the first one for me is when I was six years old, I was playing on a swing set, climbed up to the top, and watching and there was a bar a, a, they used to call it a glider and it had these two metal tubes that were sticking up and when it went one direction the tube would open and it went the other direction that tube would close and another one would open on the other side and I was watching it for a while and I thought I wonder if I put my finger in that hole in that tube if I can pull it out before it goes back you know the other direction and the little voice said uh, don't do that that's a really bad idea. Don't do that. And I thought, yeah, let me try it. And I put my finger in there, and sure enough, the tube came back, and it crushed my finger, almost cut off the tip of my finger, and I still have a little scar on my right index finger that I, whenever I want to really remember, I can just look at it. And when it gets real cold, it sometimes goes numb. But I thought, yeah, that was the first time I remember going against that little voice. And I can think of lots of other stupid mistakes in my life that I've made where I went against it. But I thought, okay, I heard it real loud back when I was a kid, but I don't remember it hearing it quite as loud in some of the other instances. Well, why is that? And I came to the realization that as a kid, um, at least as a kid when I was growing up, life was simpler and we didn't have as many external distractions as we have now. But the more sophisticated we get, the more mechanized we get, the more, um, the more we, we live really inside our, our media, um, the less time we have for that quiet reflection. So the, what, the exercises, every chapter, um, most of them involve going outside, taking five minutes, closing your eyes, and just listening. And there are different things that, I, that you can listen for to sort of hone it. And, and one person said, well, why do you do that? I mean, why do you suggest that people should uh, do a listening exercise? And I said, because if you talk to people who regularly meditate, serious meditation, 
they're pretty balanced and pretty healthy, and they don't make a lot of stupid mistakes. They're in really good, you know, physical, mental, spiritual health. And yet, I know from my conversations that most of us can't meditate. We don't know how to do that. It's too hard. They say, you know, concentrate on your breathing and empty your mind. <laughs> and my wife especially goes, I can't empty my mind. I have too many thoughts. So I'm thinking about something every minute. You know, and the thoughts just keep bombarding one another and pushing one another out. But everybody knows how to listen. So listening is the simplest form of meditation, and it accomplishes the same thing. It's that recalibration of your, your brain uh, to get to that calm space so that when you do have to make a decision, you're more likely to do this decision that's in sync with who you are and what you should be deciding as opposed to, uh, hey, I think I'll make up 15 bombs and send them out to people I don't like in the mail. Yeah, but okay. So when you were talking earlier, you're you're asking people uh, about um, what mistakes they made, and and they would tell you, and there's all types of mistakes. And uh, did you know about it? Um, did you know you were going to be making a, a mistake or doing something wrong or whatever? And um, so if, if we are aware of a thought about doing something that in essence is going to be a mistake, and we choose to do it, why is that? It's called cognitive dissonance, um, a fancy term that the psychologists use, which is a, a, basically a disconnection between what we know and what we choose to believe. And there are a lot of different reasons for it, and I'm not a psychologist, and I'm not an MD, and, I'm, and I certainly, you know, I... I've looked at some books that are so much more scholarly on the subject than mine is. Mine is not a scholarly book. Mine is a book for everybody. And I, th I think if you can read at about a fifth grade level, you can read it. It's a real easy read, and it's, it's not, it doesn't have complex compound issues in it. It's just simple. But cognitive dissonance comes into play a lot because we just, we just want to make an excuse for thinking or doing something that we know isn't right or true. And, you know, and the, the phrase is, well, I have a really hard time believing that. You know, sometimes you confront someone with the truth and you tell them, no, you know, the moon isn't made out of green cheese. And they look at you and they say, well, I have a really hard time believing that. Well, they don't really have a hard time believing it. It's just that they don't want to believe it. They don't want to do. You say... You know, um, the example would be, if, and this happened to me once, you find uh, a big wad of money laying on the sidewalk, right? Mm -hmm. And you pick it up, and you look around, and there's nobody there. There's nobody looking at you. No one saw you. Now here you are. You have this wad of money wrapped in rubber bands, and you have to make a decision. Well, there's two decisions. You can put it in your pocket and keep walking away and go, lucky me, I just, you know, I just hit the jackpot, or you can say, this probably belongs to someone, and it's probably really important to them, because this is a lot of money. And so, do you do what instinctively, I think we all know what the right thing to do is, the right thing to do is to try to figure out who it belongs to and get it back to them, which if, we, if you dropped a, a, you know, an envelope full of money that you were taking to make your mortgage payment or your rent or something, you know, you, you'd be devastated 
so you if someone returned it to you and said hey we found your money and here it is you know what a marvelous thing that is so it's there's a right thing and a wrong thing and so we we have to make those kinds of decisions some of them are dramatic like that and some of them are a lot less dramatic uh the person at the at the store um counts out your change and, and you gave them a 10 and they give you change for a 20 do you say anything or just put it in your pocket and walk away i take the money and bet on the horses <laughs> And do you think you're going to win when you with that money? You think that'll be the winner? No. And if it is, then will you parlay that bet into something else bigger? I don't know. Isn't that how it goes? You get caught by the devil. Um, yeah. But what you know when you're when you're talking about this um, sort of in a way, isn't it also sabotaging ourselves? No question. And um, and and it's almost as if we're. It's almost as if we're encouraged to sabotage ourselves because, again, if you consume the media and you look at the stories that are happening on the, you know, Access Hollywood and all those kinds of things, you know, the, what the celebrities are doing, you go, holy tamale. Here are people who have fame and fortune. They have everything going their way, and they are doing the dumbest things. <laughs> you know, something that you would never, you like, oh, my God, I can't, how could they be so stupid? And that, <laughs> that, was the, that was the question I kept asking over and over, and thus it became the title of the book, you know, One Stupid Mistake. It's like, how could they be so stupid? Yeah. And, and most of us can't even relate to the kinds of dumb things that they do. Um, I just, I got a, a, a thing the other day, and it said, you know, who are the top money-making dead celebrities <laughs> and i yeah. thought about it I thought, what a what a crazy topic right i mean okay you know they're they're dead but they're making a lot of money well um michael jackson is right there it's like ooh, gosh uh, elvis is right there ooh, golly uh, marilyn monroe is in, in the list oh gosh you know tragic things related to stupid mistakes Right, and 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 it, and then there. If if you had a list of who are the top money making people who do stupid things, um, you know, we could write we could write fifty books on that. Oh yeah, yeah. There's yeah. so many. Well, th then how do you deal with? Okay, so when you're talking about this, um, and there's things people want to believe, and then things that they. Uh, no aren't true, but they want to believe. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux. 
XXC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And, uh, you know, that you're talking about the moon and green cheese and stuff. How is it someone can believe the world is flat? And and how, how do they, how, how are they rationalizing things in other areas? I would say that anybody who believes that the world is flat should probably be avoided at all costs because <laughs> they're probably they're probably not going to drive the right direction on the freeway. Uh, they're you know they're going to do a lot of other things that are just really not in sync. You know they're kind of um, they didn't. If you have anybody who's not quite that bad but leaning that direction, please buy them a copy of my book and make sure they read it. You know to kind of. Get a grip here, folks. Let's get back to some kind of reality. But I don't know. I mean, I and I and that's a that's a completely different subject. And I don't mean to make light of it. Yeah. There is a there's a tremendous amount of mental illness in our culture today. We know that there there's there's so many people that are just really wigged out. You know, I mean, they're just out there now. And I don't know enough about medical treatment and and. Uh, psychology and psychiatry to to be able to help them and reach them but i know that they're when i'm my focus is more on the regular normal people that are really good people that and we all make mistakes there's not a single any you find me someone who's never made a mistake and i'm going to find you either a liar or a narcissist because we all make mistakes we do things we we didn't we don't that have consequences that we didn't intend so yeah. Yeah. my my focus is really more on just the average person who says, like, yeah, you know, I, and, and, and you know if you're one of these people, geez, I seem to be doing that more often. You know, I, I seem to be uh, forgetting my keys or I can't, my car in the parking lot. I don't remember where I left it. Or, 
um, you know, I, I burn the cookies when I'm uh, making cookies, or you know, I, I'm, I seem to be making more of those kinds of inattentive mistakes. And I believe that that's a direct result of this bombardment of noise and stuff that's going on, that we're not really using our own brains efficiently and effectively. And I, I you know, and right or wrong, I, I believe the cure is to just get to that quiet place for a little bit every day, just find a little bit of quiet time for reflection. And um, and if you have a hard time with that, you know, I can I can show you how to do it. It's re- relatively easy. Everybody can do it if you've got even even bad hearing. But if you've got a couple of ears, um, then then spend some time listening. And that has a lot of other side benefits too, because if you're listening then you can you pick up on so many things that are going on around you in your world and you hear if you're really actively listening you hear people more clearly so you know what their intentions are and you know what it is that they're thinking about um and and uh i also point out that you know an active listener is the most welcomed person in any conversation now one thing i noticed now on your website there you had a um, a bit here about uh, the lunch with Ronald Reagan. Uh, maybe tell the listeners a little bit about that. Um, I, I I've had a lot of adventures in my life, and um, many of them are are unexplained, as we all do. If you think about it, if you think your life has been perfectly programmed and you're in charge, I think you're delusional because stuff happens every every day that you didn't anticipate and you were always reacting to things. But I had the opportunity as a young reporter to uh, know Ronald Reagan um, when he was running for governor and after he became governor here in California. And um, I interviewed him a number of times and asked him questions at press conferences and that sort of thing. Um, One day when I was working in San Francisco, I got a telegram and the telegram said, uh, you uh, are cordially invited. Uh, Nancy and I cordially invite you to join us for lunch at the White House on such and such a date. And that was back in the days of Telegram, way before email, obviously. And I, I looked at it, and my first thought was, this is one of my friends playing a really elaborate hoax, and it's really funny. And but there was an RSVP number on it, and I called the RSVP number, and the uh, operator answered you know, White House. <laughs> so I went, oh, okay. Uh, and I said, yeah, I got your invitation here. Uh, you know, I wanted to RSVP for this lunch uh, that President Reagan wants me to come to. And he says, just a moment, sir. And they put me through to the appointment secretary and put my name on the list. And I went to the, uh, I flew to Washington, and we went into um, uh, the government house in the, in the small theater in the basement. And they brought out every single member of the cabinet. There were about 100 people in the room, first of all. They brought out every member of the cabinet, and they uh, allowed us to answer questions. We had no tape recorders allowed, no cameras allowed, but we could take notes and ask questions. So we had the Secretary of the Treasury and the Secretary of the Interior and the you know, Secretary of State, and uh, eventually uh, Vice President Bush came out. He was last, and then um, we walked through the tunnel and came up in the White House and went into a room and and sat down and, and had lunch. And 
I, I asked people, because I always do this, I told you that before, I ask questions a lot, and I said to the people next to me, who are you and where are you from? Well, somebody was from Des Moines, Iowa, and somebody was from upstate New York, and somebody was from Georgia, and they all worked at either a radio or a television station or a newspaper, and they, were, they got the invitation just like I did, out of the blue. And um, we had a wonderful lunch and, um, and went back afterwards. And, and I thought, wow, what a wonderful, weird surprise. You know, we had a chance to, to uh, President Reagan talk to us a little bit. We asked him some questions, and then we had photo op with him. So I got a picture of me with the president at the White House. Um, and a, a number of years later, when I was in Dallas, I met a guy, and he, something said something, and he said, oh, I worked in the Reagan White House. I said, really? Oh, yeah. I said, I had, I had lunch at the, at the White House. He said, oh, you were part of my program. And I said, your program? What do you mean? He said, we did that every month. Every month for eight years, President Reagan invited 100 people from local and regional media, nobody from the New York or the Washington you know, uh, press corps, but just small media people from all over the country to the White House to meet the cabinet and to meet with him and to be able to ask questions. And I always marveled, if you think about it, how right-wing and conservative President Reagan was during his time, and yet his popularity numbers were always extremely high. And they called him the great communicator and, and all that. But if you think about it, he had a very effective strategy for touching people at a grassroots level. So if somebody, you know, a newspaper publisher or a television reporter from Ames, Iowa, um, and someone like that is going into the White House every single month for eight years and then going back to their home state, um, it, was a, it was a really brilliant uh, a PR maneuver, uh, which, again, I, I had the experience before I understood the experience. But it wasn't a stupid mistake. It was, it was a no. <laughs> so what? So what are you hoping people get out of your book? What? What's? What's the thing? The one thing, if they can get something out of out of reading your book, um, what would that be that would make you happy? I'd like them to think. I'd like them to think and to use their brains. They can challenge. Um, you know, not really, because I'm not pontificating in the book, and I'm not saying you ought to do this and you ought to do that or think this think that. So I think they'll, they'll enjoy the stories. They're cute little stories about people. I usually use just the first names and things that they did. Um, one of the reviewers that I got, and I know I'm rambling off here, but I have to tell you the name of the review. The review said, uh, Coyote Eats Cat and Mother Teresa. Now, I tell a story about a coyote and a cat, and I tell a story about Mother Teresa, but they're not really related, but this review put them together. So I guess I, that's the bottom line. I'd like you to enjoy it, um, I, and, I, and, I, and I, I'm almost positive that it will make you think. It, you'll, you'll absolutely reconsider the way you approach your daily decisions. You know, we make thousands of decisions every day. Some of them are conscious, some of them are unconscious. But I think it will help raise consciousness and make you more aware of your decisions, and that would be my dream come true. Wow, pretty interesting. Where did you come up with 
deciding to write this? Like, what 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 drew you into actually making a book out of it? Okay, the, and again, the truth is stranger than fiction. Sometimes, it was the last chapter. It's chapter twenty-one in the book, and it wasn't until I finished writing that essay, I didn't even know how many essays I had because I would just put a you know some kind of a word to identify it, and then and file it in the computer. And this this by the way, the process took about two and a half years. So it wasn't something I sat down in 30 days and wrote a book. It was, it was a long time coming. And when I wrote this chapter about my friend Mike, who was a big, burly guy, he was a HVAC guy, air conditioning expert, and he had been in the Navy, and he learned his trade in the Navy, and he at one time was the, the head um, um, air conditioning guy for the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, for the whole airport complex. So he dealt with these really big machines and a really neat guy. But he was big and burly and blue collar and fun and and he laughed a lot and uh, he, he, he drank beer and he smoked cigarettes. Um, and he, he was probably 265 pounds normal weight. And he wasn't really fat. He was just he was a real big guy, probably 6'2 and 265, just thick. And when he died, he was about 75 pounds. And he died this, you know, awful, awful uh, battle with cancer that dragged out over months and months and months. But the cancer, as bad as it was and as painful as it was, wasn't the most tragic part of his death. The most tragic part of his death is that he, he couldn't come to grips with the mistakes that he had made in his life. And I spent a lot of time with him in his last days, and you know, we cried together, and we prayed together, and we, we you know, I, we just spent a lot of time. He, he couldn't really pray because he didn't really have, he had no faith. And again, I'm not saying you ought to have this kind of faith or that kind of faith, but he just had no plan for the certainty of death. And I hope I'm not breaking this to you, Al, but you're going to die. When? And every person listening... <laughs> You know, we're all going to die. The minute we're born, we're sentenced to die. But we don't spend any time thinking about that either. We don't like to think about when we die. In fact, we avoid it. And the people who avoid it the most are the ones who have the worst deaths. So having an awareness of your mistakes, having an awareness that you're going to die, if it doesn't motivate you to do anything else, I'm pretty sure... It'll motivate you to clean up the garbage that you have in your conscience. If you owe somebody an apology, today's a good day. Pick up the phone, call them up, and tell them you apologize. They may hang up the phone on you. They may not accept it, but you know what? You've done your part. Cross that one off your bucket list and move on. And if you've, if you've harmed somebody, if you've taken something from somebody, if you, whatever you've done, whatever kind of things are eating at you, because every mistake, they don't go away even if you don't get caught. They stay there with you, and they stay with you, and over time, they, it's just like a, like a sliver. A mistake that you've made in the past, especially a serious mistake that hurts somebody else, that's like a sliver. And it can go really deep in there, but it's there. And it, it's still painful to the touch, maybe not all the time, but every once in a while, whenever you really think about it, and then and it's just, you know, it needs to be lanced. You need to get it out. You need to take care of it. And my friend Mike didn't do that. 
he didn't take care of the, all the slivers, emotional slivers that he had in his body, and they just devastated him. It was so awful watching his, his psychological meltdown. And when I finished the chapter, it sounds a lot worse than it is in the book, but when I finished the chapter, I went, okay, that's the reason. That's, why I, that's what this all means. So the, all the rest of it seemed to fit together and make sense then. And the, and the little stories, whether it's about Mother Teresa or it's about me pinching my finger or it's about the, some baseball players or about Einstein. and I mean, it's all over the charts. The chapters are all completely unrelated to any of the other chapters. But they always have the same thing in common. It's somebody made a decision, something happened, and then as the reader, you get to figure it out. Like, oh, yeah. And a lot of times what people will say is, I do the same thing, or I've done the same thing, or I can really relate to that. Holy cow, I didn't realize that I have that in common with whoever it is that's you know, named Bill, Joe, Sally, or Mo. Um, and and that, that little bit of reflection is enough, I think, to get people, um, hopefully, to make one fewer stupid mistake. Hmm. Now, who 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 was the biggest influences for you, um, first as a writer? Oh golly, um, I think, I, and I can't say I don't. I probably don't write like anybody else. I would say Associated Press. <laughs> that, would <be> the, <laughs> that would be the first one. I, you know, early in my career, I I I wrote the news, and I delivered the news on the radio uh, for years and years and years. And so in the old days, we would get the news off the tele, uh, off the teletype, and that's, Mia doesn't like teletypes, so we're not having any teletypes here, Mia. It'll be fine. Shh, yeah. you be quiet. Be a good girl. Um, I thought that was we, the teletype. <laughs> that was the teletype, yeah. Um, and then, I, then you rewrite it in your own style. So I developed a style over time of writing short sentences with uh, kind of tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them, which is the radio mantra, right, for writing for radio. But if, there is a, if there's a thoughtful writer that I really enjoy, it's Anthony DeMello. And not a real popular guy that everybody's heard of, but um, he wrote some really wonderful, sensitive books about people and, and decisions and, and um, how to behave, I guess, is a uh, thing. So I like him, and and I liked uh, I like William Faulkner for a different reason. But I, I I don't write like Faulkner, and I I don't think I can write fiction. Certainly not at that level. Hmm. So. And and are there people that really give you an influence? Um, everybody. I think I think. Everybody does. Al, I, I, as you ask questions, I'm really, I, I, two things, try, I try to make two things happen. One, I really try to listen. What was your question? Are there people who, who are influential to you or give you influence? The first part. And then I, my mind immediately goes to, I'm wondering why Al asked that question. And I wonder what he's thinking or what he's feeling as he's asking that question. So I, I really, I, I meet people every single day. I try to meet people every day. And as I do, I, I ask sometimes inappropriate personal questions, but they usually tell you when, 
when it is, but I, I try to to get a look inside their inside their mind and maybe even inside their soul and say, you know, where are they coming from? What are they what's what are they all about? What do they want to accomplish? And how can I help them? What can I do to to make their day a little bit better? So everybody is an influence. I can't think there's no celebrity or movie star or famous person or somebody like that. I've heard some wonderful uh, preachers in my time that I thought were were uh, really special with some of their um, their sermons, and and then other times I've listened to the same people and go, oh, he's having an off day. He's not really good. You know, <laughs> the Billy Grahams or the Joel Osteens of the world. Every once in a while, they'll say something that really resonates, and then other times you hear them and it's like, no, not so much. Uh, doesn't it, it's not the same. So. I think everybody, my neighbor across the street was, uh, I had a conversation with him this morning, and that was really, was really thought-provoking. Uh, my neighbor up the hill I talked to last night, uh, he was on his way to an AA meeting, and he shared a little bit about that. And I went, oh, yeah, you know, and it's such, it, it takes such uh, will and determination to be committed as an alcoholic to going to AA meetings um, every week or as frequently as he as he has to go I don't know if they go twice a week or once a week but um, so yeah everybody yeah I sort of I sort of look for those type of people too not necessarily celebrity it's just sometimes uh, when people have been led in a direction or their their life's taken them somewhere where they're doing something like you with the book and and things sometimes there's different people they've met on the way or seen and it kind of influenced them to go into that area yeah I, I but I tell you if I, if I thought there was I, I really don't think I think it's more it's just it's a cumulative effect it yes. really was it grew out of a, a frustration with, with what I was observing in the world and then um, and then and then these these ideas started yeah. coming they turned into essays and I'm sure a lot of them are subtle uh, not not like instant splash like you oh woke up I'm sure a lot of the um, things that come into your life are subtle and you pick them up sometimes not not even realizing it yep I think it's the signs and I think the signs and I and I listen to some of your programs some of your other programs and you know you, you talk about a lot of really mysterious things and and there's a lot of magic in the world and I think that if you're not open to it and if you're not looking for it you're not listening for it you're gonna miss it and you miss so much because there are some really incredible things that are going on I um, a side note I just flashed on it because I looked up at my hummingbird feeder <laughs> I, I lived at a monastery for seven months at one period of my life about ten years ago and I, I met these old monks that were just incredible. And each one of them had some very special life lesson. And they influenced me for sure. But one of them had this thing with hummingbirds where he was rescuing baby hummingbirds in the spring where they got trapped on a, on a glass on a porch. And he would take them out in a snow shovel and then let them go. And you know, I said, do you want me to put the snow shovel away? And he said, no, I need those for the hummingbirds. And I, <laughs> I laughed. So, oh, I've never heard of snow shovels you know, for rescuing hummingbirds, but he told me, and I said, well, you know what, I'm going to, um, I'm going to do it with my hands. 
And so I started rescuing these baby hummingbirds off the glass with my hands, and I gently cupped them. It just If you've ever seen a fly on a window, they go yeah. up and down and up and down until they're exhausted. And these little hummingbirds would do that, and they'd be sitting there, and they were just their hearts were beating, and they were just beat. You know, they couldn't they couldn't fly anymore. And so I'd pick them up, and I would whisper to them and talk to them, and then I would take them out and then just kind of throw them into the air, and they would fly away. Um, and I did it, you know, dozens and dozens of times over the spring. And then, uh, and I told him, I said, well, I'm going to train them to land on my finger. And he said, well, good luck with that. That's going to take a lot of time and a lot of patience. And then we laughed because we were at a monastery, and what do you got but time <laughs> and patience. So um, I started hanging out by the hummingbird feeder and putting my finger up there. And sure enough, the hummingbirds would come, and at first they were, you know, they'd fly away, and they'd look at me. And, uh, but over time, they came, and then they would, they would do, like, touch-and-go landings. They would put their feet down for just a second, and then they would, you know, fly away again. But then after a while, they realized I wasn't going to hurt them. And then they would land, and they would land, and they would sometimes still, with their feet down, they'd keep their wings going, and they would feed. And then eventually, I got them just to relax. And they would sit on my finger, and they would feed at the hummingbird feeder. And then when they had their fill, then they would fly away. And it's a, it's a sort of a, I, I don't know if it's a metaphor for life or not, but I, I like to think of it that way, that if you, if you say to somebody, I'm going to have a hummingbird sit on my finger, that just sounds crazy. You know how <laughs> you know, that's just not gonna you're not that's not gonna happen. But if you have a little time and a little bit of patience and you just go you go about it the right way and you have a good strategy and everything, you can make that happen. And and I know because I, I did. And it was it was the most gratifying experience ever. Yeah. And that's kinda that's the story I wanted. <laughs> oh, great. Well, it's been an interesting hour. I'm, I'm certainly glad you had the time to come talk with us here. Uh, I am so uh, fortunate to have been able to spend time with you, Alan. You're a, you're a great active listener because you really do listen and you pay attention and uh, your your questions are wonderful and uh, and I love your program and I'll, I'll be listening, not just for myself. I'll, I'll listen to your other guests as well. Well, well. Thank you very much. That's uh, now our guest today has been uh, the the author of One Stupid Mistake: Smart Decision Making in a Crazy World. Now that just came out September 11th, and uh, it's on Amazon. Is it on other places too? Um, it's on BarnesandNoble.com, and uh, it's probably at some little indie bookstores here and there. But yeah. uh, the, the primary source are. Um, Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Yeah, seems to be the places now. Yeah. Well, Charlie Serafin, thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Al. I very much appreciate you and your program, and uh, best of luck to you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.